rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of the Lord. So what does this vision of the future um, do for anyone? At the end of the day, Daniel rises up and goes about the king's business, appalled by the vision and not understanding it. What about for us? Understanding for us is going to be the easy part, as we'll see. But what's the point? Daniel didn't understand, and he wouldn't have to face it. We understand, but it's all over and done with. So what's the ongoing relevance for this? Now we might read this and hear the beginning of the interpretation and hear that this vision is for the time of the end. And maybe your mind automatically jumps to what we call the end times, the end of the world, when who knows what's going to happen because we all disagree about it and Jesus comes back. We agree about that part. But um, what's going to happen there? That's what this is about. We've been conditioned to think that way in a lot of our churches, but a lot of apocalyptic literature, a lot of in the Bible that's talking about this, doesn't refer to that, doesn't refer to the end of the world as we know it right now, but to something more specific. Here it even says the end of this indignation, of what's being said will happen to God's people in this story, in this time, in this place, to God's people and God's house in Jerusalem here. As Dan mentioned last week, apocalyptic literature isn't to obscure things, to hide it away. It's actually meant to reveal, to make it clearer. And so what we'll see this morning is that no matter what's going on in or around them, and no matter what might come, God's people can go about their daily lives, faithfully persevering wherever they are, with utter confidence that their God rules history. We'll see that in three ways. We'll see first that he holds even the smallest details of the future in his hands. We'll see that he raises up and tears down kingdoms. And finally, we'll see that he restrains and uses evil, even evil, for his own purposes. And that message is similar for us today, that we can go about our daily lives and work with utter confidence that our God rules all of history. We see this first that he holds the future in his hands. Daniel is confused by the vision. It says that twice. He's the one who in the past has been interpreting dreams, and now he doesn't know what his own vision means. He seeks to understand it in verse 15. In verse 27, he still doesn't understand. Why is that? Because it's a very specific vision about a distant future. This happens over 350 years after the vision. It's not something Daniel will experience. He could never guess it. The vision is true, told back. But he's told in verse 26 to seal it up, for it refers to many days from now. So if you see Back to the Future Part 2, Derek is the sports almanac from 1950 to 2000 sports almanac, and he gets rich because he knows the outcome of every sporting event. He knows the stats, and he can bet on it and make a bunch of money. Right? But this is so much more than that. 
It's not this mere understanding of the immediate, relatively immediate future. It'd be more like saying that Jaden Daniels from Louisiana State University is going to win the Heisman to a pilgrim on the Mayflower. Before the U.S. as a country, before Louisiana as a state, before football has been invented, let alone who is Heisman. That's more what it's like. And not only that, he's not merely predicting the future, but he's actually bringing it about. He's in control of all of it. The fancy theological word used for this is he's sovereign over it, that he both has the right and the power to bring it about. This is the main reason a lot of people don't think Daniel was written by Daniel. Or why, why, uh, or why Israel was in exile. There's just no way it could be predicted like this. Right? That's why if you go to Wikipedia's page on Daniel, it says that it's a 2nd century book written with a 6th century setting. Right? They have to assume that this already happened to write about it. Which, incidentally, is a good reason not to trust Wikipedia um, or most of the internet for your theology. I'm serious about that. I know you guys Google a lot of stuff, and there's a bunch of stuff out there. Um, if you have questions on those things, you can ask us. We'll give you, point you in the right direction, give you resources. Um, but that makes sense, right, from a naturalistic worldview. One that presupposes that there is no transcendence, that there's nothing supernatural, that there's nothing outside of what we see and touch and feel. This conclusion makes sense. If there's no God, if we're the ones who are directing history, if it's all just cause and effect, then clearly God couldn't predict something over 300 years in the future. But the problem is that the conclusion is assumed in the presupposition. Right? If there's no God, God couldn't predict it. Amen. I agree with that. That makes sense. But what if that presupposition is wrong? Right? That's the question. What if we just admit the possibility of God? What if it's true? Or it could be true? If it's not, who cares about any of it? And I mean that. Like, we're wasting our time in here. I'm wasting my time, my life. But what if it's true? If it's true, it has huge implications for our lives. If there's a God who is so sovereign over all of history, who can predict and even bring about events several centuries in the future, what does that mean for everything that he says? It means it's true. It means he can call us to whatever he wants to call us to. And maybe you're on the fence about this. You don't know if it's true or not. It makes sense that if this God is real that he could do this, but I don't know. I'd encourage you to try him out. To give him a shot. To live as though he is. New Year's coming up, right? Start new things. Try that out. Live as if he's real. I don't just mean go through the motions like we go to church, I do the religious activity and then go home and go about my business, do whatever. But to actually say in your heart, God, I don't know if you're real, but I want to know. I want to know you if you're there. And then to search him out, not in this guarded way that says you're probably not, but I'll do this, but to actually come to Scripture and assume that it's true. 
So what does this mean for me if this is true? And to live it out, to give it a shot, because he says that if we'll search him out, we'll find him. And he's not far from each of us. So I'd encourage you there. Take 2024, if you've never done this, and give him a shot. Live as if he's real, as if his word is the truth. And see if he does not reveal himself to you. And for those of you who already know this, who believe this to be true already, let this reestablish you in your faith that his word is trustworthy and true. Many of you are worried about the future. But this shows us who has the future in his hands. It's not beyond his control. Let us go to him. Let us trust him. Let us follow him in obedience to his word. We can go about our daily lives and work with utter confidence that our God rules all of history. He holds the future in his hands. Not only that, but he raises up and tears down kingdoms. Now we get into some of the details of the vision. We have this ram from verse 4 with two horns, one longer than the other, that rushes north, south, west, and no one can stand before it or rescue from its power. The angel Gabriel, first named angel in the Bible, just a fun fact for you. But uh, He tells us in verse 20 that these are the kings of Media and Persia, Persia being the greater horn that subsumed the Babylonian or not Babylonian, the Median Empire. They came from the east and conquered Babylon. Because when this is happening, Belshazzar is the king, he's Babylonian. So Babylon is actually the ruling kingdom at this point. Saying the Medes and the Persians are coming in. And the Persian Empire was a big one. It's one that grew and lasted for over 200 years. So for perspective, the U.S. is 247 years old right now. So they're very comparable states. Large, influential kingdoms. Or democratic republics for our... We don't like kings, right? But this powerful empire will not last. In verses 5 to 7, the goat comes, flying from the west, and casts it down, breaks its horns, and tramples it. And we see in verse 21 that this ram is the king of Greece. And that great horn is the first king. It's Alexander the Great tutored by Aristotle in his youth, general of the Greek army by 26. He conquers this vast and powerful Persian empire in three years. He started for over 200, down in less than three. We see in verse 8, when he was strong, this great horn is broken. And four horns arose in its place. Alexander the Great took the world by storm. No one expected that to happen. It happened quick. And then he died at the age of 32 or 33. Makes you feel good about what you've accomplished, right? This powerful, this great horn, this powerful king, is just broken at the height of his power. And out of it come four horns, but not with his power. So after his death, there's some political intrigue that happens. An uncle is kind of co-regent with his son who hadn't been born yet, then is born and then assassinated and so on and so forth. But in a pretty short period of time, that kingdom's divided into four. 
where Alexander's generals rule each of the four kingdoms. And this 360-some-year period is covered in the dream's interpretation in only three verses. It's longer than the vision itself, but only three verses. It's time, like 360 years, that God's people are still subjugated to these nations, that they're still not free. But the message of the ram and the goat are good news to God's people who have been suffering at the hands of these other kingdoms. Who, when this is written, are still in exile, that these worldly kingdoms will not last. When you hear this is written, they're still there. They're still subjugated. But they don't have to worry about it. These empires have seemed so powerful that no one can stand before. They're not all they're cracked up to be. They may have earthly power, but it doesn't last. It never lasts. There's only one kingdom that will endure. And God's people belong to this kingdom. It's like pulling back the curtain to see what's really going on. It's what apocalyptic literature is. It's this revealing, showing the reality to what might be lost in a mirage. It's like the Wizard of Oz. When they come before the great and powerful Oz, and they're terrified by their green face and the fire shooting up and the thunder crashing and the loud, booming voice. And then they see this little curtain moving off to the side, right? It says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's just a man. The great and powerful Oz is, in his own words, a very bad wizard. That lesson can be true for us as well. What haunts your thoughts and keeps you up at night might not be um, empires rising and falling. Though you may be concerned with the state of our nation as it is, but it might be something else that's threatening your own security or safety or comfort, your job, the economy, your health, or fears of a diagnosis, your kids, or how they'll turn out, or what they're going through, your parents as they're aging, and you're having to help them through those things. Those things are all real. Media and Persia are real. Greece is real. They're all real. We don't have to pretend that they're not real. We don't have to act as if they don't exist. But when we pull back the curtain, when we see that the Lord is sovereign even over these things, they need not loom so large. In the Lord's eyes, they are as sheep or goats. God is our good shepherd who is with us. He will not let us be trampled. Even though these things are out of our control, they're not beyond his. The same God who raises up and tears down kingdoms and has, con- has control over your very life and story. And as one commentator writes, he says, if you belong to Christ, the whole world revolves in the hand of the one who cares for you far more deeply than you can imagine. As a result, nothing in the present or in the future can ever separate you from his love. We need not fear these things. We can go about our daily lives and work with utter confidence that our God rules all of history. 
He holds the future in his hand. He raises and tears down kingdoms. And he even restrains and uses evil for his purposes. It's really the focus of this vision where the bulk is spent, this little horn. If you read the end of chapter 7, it's different than the little horn in chapter 7. It comes at a different place in history. That one comes later, but there might be some typological continuity between the two. But this little horn comes from one of the four horns. It starts off small, but then it grows large, and it even goes toward the glorious land, it says. That is, toward Jerusalem, where God has set his name. We see in verse 10, it grew even to the hosts of heaven and threw down some stars. We see in the interpretation in verse 24 that these are mighty men and people who are the saints. It's God's people being thrown down, being trampled. He's king. He destroys many and even rises up against God himself. He's a king of bold face. He sets himself on par with God. He ceases the sacrifices in the temple. This is talking about Antiochus IV, whose nickname is Epiphanes, which means God manifest. That's what he's, he gave himself that nickname. Uh, detractors called him Epimanes, which means crazy man. But uh, that's how he refers to himself. God manifest among them. He was the king of the Seleucid Empire, one of those four that arose up from Alexander the Great's kingdom. In the grand scheme of things, in the world scale, um, he's not that big of a deal. Kind of a mid-level guy. But when it comes to God's people, he's infamous. Hanukkah just ended Friday evening. If you're familiar with that, that's actually the celebration of the reconsecration of the temple after this period. In the intertestamental book of the Maccabees, they talk about some of the things that Antiochus did. It says there that in a three-day period he killed 40,000 Jews and sold another 40,000 as slaves. In three days, just 80,000, just like that. In Maccabees and other historical records, we also see he removed the high priest from the temple earlier on. He entered the Holy of Holies himself, where no man was to go but the high priest and only once a year. He took God's altar and sacrificed pigs on it, unclean animals, Not only that, he made human sacrifices. Those made in God's image were sacrificed on God's altar at his temple. He forced the Jewish people to eat pork, which was forbidden for them. He outlawed circumcision with a death penalty. He stopped the regular morning and evening sacrifices at the temple. He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple of Yahweh. He burned copies of the scriptures. We thought Belshazzar was bad using the utensils from the temple a couple chapters ago to praise other gods. This is a whole new level. And Antiochus knows what he's doing. It's intentional. It's evil. He has an utter hatred for God and his people. 
time period of 2,300 days listed in verse 14. That's just under six and a half years. Right? Seven in the Bible is a symbol for completion. It falls short of that. It's not complete. It's restrained. It doesn't go all the way. God allows it for his purposes. It says in verse 23 that this only happened when the transgressors have reached their limit. She's actually saying the Jewish people were disobeying and sinning against God, and this is their discipline again. They're in exile hearing this message, being disciplined for unfaithfulness. And then they're getting this message again that you will continue in your unfaithfulness. That's what's going on. God uses it. But he always restrains it. You can take that number symbolically as just short of a period of complete judgment. Or it sits with the time from when Antiochus removed the high priest to when the temple was reconsecrated. It's not exactly 2300, but it's a rounding issue. It's within... It's within 100 days, I think. But I think the exact use of the number uh, matters less than the point that God restrains this evil, that he stops it. I think the fact that it's in days, not times or years, as we've previously seen, shows that God is interested in and sovereign over even the details. That he gets more granular. As we read, it's clear to see that God is... Still the one in control. In verse 24, Antiochus' power is great, but it says, but it wasn't his own power. God has given it to him. And then in verse 25, he will rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. There are different records to how Antiochus died, but... Um, it's pretty clear from history that he didn't die in battle and he wasn't assassinated. That it wasn't in human hands. That he was killed some other way. It fits with this perfectly, that God broke his horn. That God killed him. That he was always within God's control. And Daniel's appalled by this vision. Right? He doesn't understand it. And he's appalled by what it contains, that it's too dark. Daniel, if you remember, was taken in the first wave of exiles. He's probably in his 70s now. So he's been in exile this whole time as a young teenager, ripped out of his homeland by the Babylonians. So he's already been through a lot, but this? If I would allow this, God would use this. But isn't that how God works in history? There's this pattern of God using evil for good. We often have this picture of this cosmic battle between good and evil, duking it out on this level playing field. And it's true. There are good and evil forces battling it out, but it is not an equal playing field. God is in control over them. He conquers them. But he also uses them. You see it in Genesis when Joseph, his brothers, his own brothers, sell him into slavery and tell their dad he's dead. What does he say in Genesis 50 there? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And God used that to deliver his people, to save them. Right? Many of you probably like Romans 8.28. But what does it require for us to take that seriously? It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That means God has to be knitting together everything happening. The very details of our lives and even using the evil that we experience for our good somehow. We might not understand it. We don't have to. It's some good news. But isn't this what we see at the high point of human history as well? When the Son of God was crucified. I love this verse in Acts 2 where Peter says in his sermon, Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God was orchestrating all of history, and yet it's evil who kills him, who actually hangs him on the cross. But no matter how dark the night, there is hope. God, who is goodness and light and life, is working even in those places. Even when all seems lost, even when the temple is overthrown, even when God himself is hanging on a cross, even when it looks like evil will win, light always overcomes the darkness. So we celebrate at Christmas, even pictured in our Advent wreath, the light overcoming the darkness. No matter how dark the night, it will not last. So what do we do? I think like Daniel, we can lament it. We can be confused by it. We can even be sick about it. But then we go about our work. Whatever God has placed before you, whatever position he's put you in, we go about it in faithfulness and obedience, saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and bring your work to completion in us. Bring about what you have promised, what is coming. We can go about our daily lives and work with utter confidence that our God rules all of history. There is nothing beyond his control. As we turn now to the Lord's Supper, we see the ultimate act of God using evil for good. God's enemies thought they had won when Jesus died. They didn't know that God was using it to bring about deliverance for his people. Jesus, God in the flesh, so we actually celebrate Epiphany later in the year. God manifests among us truly. He came and lived a perfect life. He's the only one who's truly innocent. The only one who deserves no punishment. And yet he chose to go to the cross willingly, taking our sin, what we deserve, upon himself. 
that we might be declared righteous, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might live and never die. The darkest day of human history now goes by the name Good Friday. Why? Because Sunday came and the tomb was empty. Evil and sin and death do not get the final word. The chains of death could not hold him. And if you are in Christ, they will not hold you either. Your sins have been paid. You have been declared righteous and adopted as a son or daughter of the king who rules the eternal kingdom, who will one day come again and set all things right, whose kingdom will know no end. Amen. 